This morning's service is a change from the advertised programme, as they occasionally say on television, and is a kind of a response to some of what was shared at last week's Baptist Assembly, picking up themes from that assembly, because I was particularly inspired and challenged to go away and think about those more. And all the Bible readings that we will hear today were either used or at least directly referred to within that assembly. And so our call to worship is from Ephesians chapter 5, reading from the message paraphrase. Watch what God does, and then you do it. Like children learn proper behaviour from their parents. Mostly, what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not courteous, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. Our gathering prayer this morning is printed on the purple sheet on your chairs. And this is taken from the Baptist worship book called Gathering for Worship. I will read the words in the light type if you could join with me in praying the words in the bold type. So let us pray together. Loving God, you have made the world in which we live and you have given us life. Eternal word. Generous God, you have shown us in your Son the wonder and the cost of love through his life and through his death upon the cross. Risen Lord, we praise and adore you. Creator God, through your life-giving spirit, you renew and empower us to live as the children of God. Spirit of love, joy and Servant God, forgive us our squandering of life and its possibilities. We have missed opportunities for service and witness. We have misused and neglected the gifts which you have entrusted to us. Our love of you has been half-hearted and our love of others pitiful. Let the glory of loving service shown to us in Christ shine through our lives, restoring us and renewing us to your ways. Grant us the confidence we lack in your life-giving spirit to do a new thing among us and within us. Amen. The first reading is from John chapter 2, verses 2 to 10. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine had given out, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no wine left. You must not tell me what to do, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. (laughs) Jesus' mother then told the servants, Do whatever he tells you. The Jews have rules about ritual washing, and for this purpose, six stone water jars were were there, each one large enough to hold about 100 litres. 
Jesus said to the servants, fill these jars with water. They filled them to the brim, and then he told them, now draw some water out and take it to the man in charge of the feast. They took him the water, which now had turned into wine, and he tasted it. He did not know where this wine had come from, but of course the servants who had drawn out the water knew. So he called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone else serves the best wine first, and after the guests have had plenty to drink, he serves the ordinary wine, but you have kept the best wine until now. The second reading is John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus went to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from death. They prepared a dinner for him there, which Martha helped to serve. Lazarus was one of those who were sitting at the table with Jesus. Then Mary took half a litre of a very expensive perfume made of pure nard, poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped them with her own hair. The sweet smell of the perfume filled the whole house. One of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot, the one who was going to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 silver coins and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He carried the money bag and would help himself from it. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Let her keep what she has for the day of my burial. You will always have poor people with you, but you will not always have me. And the final reading is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 to 15. You should each give, then, as you have decided, not with regret or out of a sense of duty, for God loves the one who gives gladly. And God is able to give you more than you need, so that you will always have all you need for yourselves and more than enough for every good cause. As the scripture says, he gives generously to the needy, his, kind, his kindness lasts forever. And God, who supplies seed to sow and bread to eat, will also supply you with all the seed you need and will make it grow and produce a rich harvest from your generosity. He will always make you rich enough to be generous at all times, so that many will thank God for your gifts which they receive from us. For this service you perform not only meets the needs of God's people, but also produces an outpouring of gratitude to God. And because of the proof which this service of yours brings, many will give glory to God for your loyalty to the gospel of Christ, which you profess, and for your generosity in sharing with them and everyone else. And so, with deep affection, they will pray for you because of the extraordinary grace God has shown you. Let us thank God for his priceless gift. I wonder when it was that something last struck you as outrageous. What was the last thing that got you really annoyed or angry? that really unsettled your comfort and made you want to say or do something. Outrage. The outward expression of inner infuriation. Outrageous. That which prompts an outpouring of anger or bewilderment. How can such a word 
being be used in conjunction with generosity. A word that means an outpouring of good, a lavish or abundant giving to another, often at great personal cost. And yet this phrase, outrageous generosity, was chosen as the title for the recent Baptist Assembly, which I went to along with Nancy and Douglas on your behalf. Right at the start of assembly, the General Director of the Baptist Union of Scotland, Alan Donaldson, was asked what he thought the theme meant. And he told a story of how some years ago he'd travelled to Eastern Europe with a group of people who were working with actors to create dramatisations of Bible stories, and specifically of the parables. One morning, the group had been rehearsing the story that we know as the prodigal son, and all seemed to go really well until the coffee break. And then he noticed all the actors were huddled in a corner, and they were clearly agitated, and their voices were raised in a, in a very frenzied discussion. What was the problem? So when they went and asked them, the actor said, this story, it's outrageous, ridiculous. How could a son behave like that and his father show such generosity? It's just scandalous, impossible, we can't cope with it. For Alan, that response from intelligent, thinking people, hearing the parable for the first time was a significant moment. The generosity of God is indeed outrageous. Not just so high you can't get over it and so low you can't get under it and so wide you can't get round it. No, it's more than just its magnitude. God's love is scandalous. God's generosity can offend not just those hearing the stories for the first time, but also those of us who try to follow Jesus. I came home from assembly with a lot to think about. I'd listened to inspiring speakers, and that's quite normal with assemblies. I always come away feeling inspired. But I'd also been challenged. I needed to spend more time thinking about the ideas that had been shared and about the practical outworking of this idea of outrageous generosity. Right at the heart of what we are about is what it means to be as outrageously generous in our understanding of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. In other words, it's not good enough to say that God's love towards us is outrageous. God's generosity to us is outrageous. So must our generosity to others be equally outrageous. And it is Jesus Christ met in the Gospels who is the one who should shape our understanding. Whenever we read a passage of scripture, we should be asking ourselves, how would Jesus read this passage of scripture? What would be a Christ-like interpretation of that story, that rule, that piece of teaching? One of the assembly speakers, who's a minister at Stirling Baptist Church, I think, Reverend Dr. Alistair Black, in his opening address, noted that sometimes theological correctness might be in conflict 
with a gospel understanding of the generosity of God. And if, or as he said, when, that is so, then our theology needs to change to match God's generosity as seen in Jesus Christ. Basically, if our theology doesn't fit with how we understand God's generosity, then we need to rethink our theology. The challenge arises, of course, when we find a tension or a mismatch between our theologies, the way we understand our faith in terms of doctrine and ethics, and the gospel, how we understand good news as revealed in Jesus. That's what he was saying. Sometimes our theology and the gospel are in conflict. And that was strong stuff, and I'm still trying to think that one through. In a subsequent session, the same speaker said there are no neat roadmaps for 21st century Christian living. And he took us right back to the question that an earnest young man once asked Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? We all know that. We even heard it a couple of weeks ago as part of our, our readings. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love your neighbour as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Is the kind of grounded, everyday expression of that. And the speaker said something that I have said many times and other speakers have said many times. That we are reminded that we are to love ourselves. That is important. But he went a bit further. He said... Just think, what does it really mean to love your neighbour as you love yourself? To want for your neighbour exactly the same as you want for yourself. And here's where the real rub comes. Working for that with the same degree of energy. So, for example, if we want a comfortable home for ourselves we should equally want comfortable homes for other people and put the same level of energy into working towards that. If we want the finest education for our children, we should also want the finest education for the children in that local authority housing scheme down the road or the children in the favelas or slums of cities across the world. If we want good quality healthcare free at the point of delivery for ourselves then we should want it and work for it for those in the world's poorest nations. One of the things I was challenged to think about as I filled my shoebox was what would I be spending and putting in a present for my nephews and nieces? And what am I putting in a box to go to a child who will get nothing? So I spent a bit more this year, it has to be said. It's very difficult if we really try to do that. And it sounds okay when we're talking in the abstract about education or healthcare or housing. But actually, it's much more than that and it's much more challenging. If we want for our neighbours here in Scotland the same as we want for ourselves, what does that mean? It means... We have to want the same freedoms for Muslims, Hindus, Jews, atheists and pagans. If we want the freedom to hold our views 
And if we love our neighbour as ourselves, then we want the same freedom for them. Even if that means that we become part of a society that doesn't always sit comfortably with our understandings of right and wrong. It doesn't compromise our commitment to Christ to want the same freedoms for others that we enjoy. If we want the freedom to live according to our moral compass, then surely we have to want that same freedom for people whose moral compass is different. And it starts to get uncomfortable, or it does for me anyway. Not only should I want that, but I should work for it. And if I'm honest, I struggle when I have to move from theory to practice. You see, sometimes I'm very happy for God to be outrageously generous towards me. I'm not always quite so keen on God being outrageously generous to other people. I suspect you're not so different. Because we have two stories from the Gospel of John, each of which hint at outrageous generosity. The first was the account of Jesus attending a wedding banquet at Cana, and this is a clear illustration of God's generosity. The host of that banquet faced an absolute and utter social disaster. He didn't have enough wine. He wasn't just going to be embarrassed. In that culture, this would bring a whole heap of shame, and it would be remembered. It was far more significant than it would have been nowadays. And there wasn't just a shop down the road they could go and buy some more either. And what Jesus does in that context is utterly outrageous. Here are some nice jars used for ritual washing. This is, you know, like kind of holy jars. And he says, right, go and get water, fill them up. Now, that would have taken an awfully long time because they were very big jars if they had to be filled up from scratch. (laughs) But the host accepts this outrageous request. Well, okay, these are my holy water jars, but hey, if you tell me to fill them with water, I'll fill them with water. And so they do. And because we know that story, because we've heard it so many times, we miss the extravagance and the scandal of the way these jars, used for ceremonial washing, become full of wine that are the vehicle for human revelry. And if we read it in um, a more precise translation than the Good News Bible, it would actually hint at drunkenness, intoxication. That is outrageous, is it not? That the holy water jar becomes a vehicle for intoxication? And yet, we hear this story as something about God's generosity about God who gave far more than was needed out of love. The man saves face. He's not embarrassed, he's not shamed, and we see the first sign of who Jesus is. And if we carried on through the whole of Scripture, there are countless examples of God's exuberant and shocking generosity. And yet I don't think it surprises us, quite honestly, we just seem to think that that's our right. If, you know, if you're faithful to God, God will give you ridiculous amounts of goodness. Hurrah. It's not so easy to take the next step and offer the same kind of generosity ourselves. 
And so the second story we heard from the Gospel of John is equally important. Each of the four Gospels has a story of a woman anointing Jesus. The details vary, but in each story there is a woman whose generosity is utterly outrageous. So much so that people around her are quick to voice her disgust. What a waste! Surely, if she wanted to be generous, she could have sold this perfume and given the money to charity. So said the man who helped himself by dipping into the common purse. This woman took what she had and poured it away over Jesus as an act of lavish love. If God's generosity to us is outrageous, then our generosity should be equally shocking. That's what it means if we say we love God with all we are, all we have, all we can be, and if we love our neighbours as ourselves. If we want to bless God, God to bless us, sorry, if we want God to bless us and we want God to give us good things, we should do the same for other people. The anointing shocked and horrified those who witness. But what did Jesus say? Jesus, who is God incarnate, he said, this is beautiful. This is lovely. The same Jesus who allowed a woman, and in some of the gospel stories, not the John one, a woman who was perhaps sinful, whatever that might have meant, to pour out her generosity on him. That same Jesus at other times said, whatever you did for the least of these, you do it for me. Jesus was described as a glutton, as a friend of sinners. Jesus crossed social boundaries and challenged religious legalism. And he says to each one of us, go and do thou likewise. But what does that mean in practice? The assembly speakers offered many different helpful ideas for us to think about what we could do to be more generous and, in fact, to be more outrageously generous in our own lives. And I could talk for three days, as they did on that, but we don't have three days. So this is going to be very briefly three things. First one is generosity of language. Generosity of language. And that's not as easy as it sounds. The power of words is enormous, and careless language can inadvertently give offence or cause damage. The challenge is to think not only what we say, but how we say it. Because very easily we slip into making value judgments when we think we're simply stating a fact. Reverend David Macmillan, who comes from a Northern Irish context, gave us the example of the Reverend Ian Paisley in Northern Ireland. And you may remember, as I do, and I wish I could do the accent, but I can't, and I'm not going to embarrass Holly by asking her to come out and do it, but he would refer to Sinn Féin IRA as if the two were somehow synonymous, that Sinn Féin and IRA were the same thing. And I would have to confess that I bought into that. Once Sinn Féin, as a political party, had been elected, amazingly, he dropped the IRA bit off the end. Now, I don't know his intent, I have my suspicions, but those words he chose to use were very powerful. 
And it's true for all of us. And we're going to get it wrong sometimes, so don't go and beat yourself up about it. But um, the words we say can do as much damage as our actions. There was in the 1980s, when I was quite into Christian rock music, a song that said, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will break my heart. And I just wonder, for each one of us, what are the words or expressions that we use without thinking that are hurtful or damaging to others? And I wonder where and when it is that each one of us needs to be a little more generous in our speech. I have to say, I'm very good at opening my mouth and putting my size six and a half feet in it, so please don't think I think I've got it sorted. I haven't, but it is something that's worth us thinking seriously about and trying to emulate. Secondly, we need to be generous with ourselves and with each other. Alistair Black, again, observed that for over a century, Christians have bought into what he described as a flawed model of conversion that ran roughly like this. Before conversion, we're broken and bad. After conversion, we're whole and good. And he said, but we all know that's not true, because we all know we still got it wrong. We all know that after we changed, after we gave our lives to Christ, we weren't suddenly all sorted. So that's clearly bad understanding. Our conversion to Christ is a process, not just an event. And this side of eternity, not one of us will ever have arrived. The scripture says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And all continue to fall short of the glory of God. And what we need is a new way of looking at sin and forgiveness that reflects the generosity of God. The way that we want God to treat us and the way that we should treat each other. One of the things we need to learn is not to elevate one sin, or one kind of sin, real or perceived, over and above all others, and say, that's the thing that's really wrong. Because do you remember that little story that Jesus told? And I'm sure he must have had a chuckle as he said it. Take the great big plank out of your own eye first, and then you can see the tiny speck of dust in somebody else's eye. We've got to learn to be generous with one another. And we all get it wrong sometimes. We all make mistakes. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all long to be forgiven by God and given another chance, and another chance, and another chance, and another chance. And so we should do with others. Lastly, and this is where the rubber hits the road, we need to be generous to society whilst being loyal to the gospel. We need to recognise that there will always be differences between any faith community and a society that embraces tolerance and diversity. We can't have our cake and eat it, as my mother used to say. If we want freedom to live our way, We must allow others the freedom to live their way. And for us as Baptists, who historically have an emphasis on freedom of conscience, that ought to be fairly natural. I appreciate that not all Scottish Baptist churches have English Baptist roots, 
but one of the early English Baptists wrote, let them be Jews, let them be Turks, let them be infidels. If we want freedom, we must grant the same freedom to others. Doesn't mean to say we necessarily agree with them. Doesn't mean to say we don't want them to know Jesus as we do. But it does mean we say people must be free to work out for themselves how to live. You see, if we say to society, you mustn't do that because we don't agree with it, you mustn't drink wine because we're teetotal, you mustn't shop on Sundays because we think Sundays is the Sabbath, that's not very generous. Because if somebody turned to us and said, you can't worship on a Sunday, that's the day for this, you must do such and such that we don't like, we'd soon be up in arms because that was our freedoms. Better, though convoluted, would be something along these lines to say, we recognise and affirm the desires of others to live according to their conscience. But for us, in good conscience, we're uncomfortable with shopping on Sundays, drinking, whatever it might be. And we think that that voice ought to be heard and respected too. It's cumbersome, but it's a little more generous. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Generous hearts, generous language, and a generosity towards society have to go hand in hand. So, lots of things in the news at the moment, and I'm not going to give you the answers because you have to work it out. But what would be an outrageously generous response to the situation in Greece at the moment? What would be an outrageously generous response to the people camped outside St Paul's and currently in George Square, though they might be moving to Kelvin Grove Park shortly? What is an outrageously response to the current legislation on marriage? What is an outrageous response to the person that we live nearby? You see, the challenge for every single one of us is to go away and think carefully and prayerfully what would Christ do, say, be in that context. Because God's outrageous generosity was such that God's only son came and lived among us and died to restore us and the whole of creation to God that's the heart of it and from that we are called to respond let us pray Lord God your nature is loving generosity which many of us have experienced time and again through our lives. You set a myriad stars in their courses and clothed the earth with countless flowers in their season. Yet we believe you are concerned for the well-being of every one of the seven billion inhabitants of this world. The rainbow spans the sky as a symbol of your providence and the unfailing sequence of seasons reminds us of your promises for all eternity.
So we worship you now as your grateful children who say with the psalmist, the lines fall for me in pleasant places. I am well content with my inheritance. But we don't have to look far around us to realize how privileged we are to recognize you as a loving God and how hard it must be for many of your children to see you as love (coughs) incarnate in Jesus. How understandable it is for millions to reject the way we see you for their experiences of life under constant threat of poverty or disease of exploitation or abuse, of conflict or of death. Lord, hear our prayer for all who have no experience of love and security, of plenty and health, of self-fulfillment and joy in life. Generous, self-giving God, we confess to our human propensity to seek personal advantage regardless of the cost of others that may prevent their experiencing your boundless providence. So we pray earnestly that your Holy Spirit may bring about a change of heart and mind in those whose actions and attitudes have an evil influence on their fellow human beings. All who use violence as a means of gaining power and wealth. All who deprive others of the justice to which they have a right. All who distort truth or subordinate truth to self-advantage. All who spread disease and addiction regardless of the consequences. All who claim more than their fair share of God-given resources, like fresh water. All who use their own freedom or influence to enslave others. All who claim the authority of scripture or dogma to dishonor God and their own integrity. all whose hearts have been corrupted and who respect neither God nor man. Heavenly Father, forgive us, we pray, for those times when we have given in to temptation and have forgotten your command to love one another. We pray especially this morning for all affected by the motorway crash in Somerset and for all who are earnestly seeking solutions for the social, political, and financial problems facing the world today. Gracious God, whose will it is that all your human children should find salvation and enjoy fullness of life, strengthen, we pray, our faith, that the way taught by Jesus is indeed the hope of all the world. And by your grace, enable us to show that way to others, 
that your kingdom may come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.